Go to Ezra 3 if you want to turn there. And uh, this has been an awesome week. It's been a crazy week uh, for us as a family. It's, I mean, it's just about every uh, natural thing that could go wrong with all of our possessions has gone wrong this week. So that tells me today's going to be amazing. So, um, so anyway, not that it wasn't going to be before, but um, y'all know what I'm saying. So um, we are going to um, talk about, so last week we talked about rebuilding altars. This week we're going to do the second part of Ezra 3 before we go into some stuff in Genesis next week. So um, this is going to be just, I can't wait for you guys to see some of this stuff. So Ezra 3, is everybody back in now for the most part? Everybody? Good. We'll go ahead and do giving because at the end I, um, I really want us to have some time to just, just process some stuff. So before we do that, Ellington, could you run back to my office and get the offering bucket? Because I totally forgot it again. And that gives people plenty of time to, thank you, prepare for uh, giving. So it's the last week of the month. It's the last Sunday of the month. Um, can y'all believe May is coming up? It's crazy. Mine and Jordan's six-year anniversary is next Sunday. So we'll be spending that with you guys. That'll be awesome. And then um, I'm trying to think what else is coming up. Our, our neighborhood's pool is opening Saturday. So it's super weird. Has anybody else is already open? Okay, good, because it's way too cold right now. Veda, that's the thing about being a parent is like Veda's going to be ready to just like jump in and guess who's got to also jump in to watch her in the pool? Me. So, um, so I love swimming and playing with her, but I also love not getting frostbite. So, uh, you know, so we'll just um, pray that the Lord kind of protects us <laughs> through that and hopefully it warms up a little bit, but might take that little uh, heating tube I used for baptism and just stick it right down, right down in the pool for a little while. I think we're good. Um, I'm going to take out my notes from last week so I don't get confused. Okay, we're going to give. Did uh, he come back in here yet? Go ahead and prepare to give. If you're watching online, uh, all the links are right there. And one quick announcement. Thank you so much. One quick announcement. If you give online or maybe you haven't given online because you have to create an account. So typically, if you give online, you have to create an account so it saves all your information that way we can send you tax forms, all that other fun stuff. But the day and age we live in, some people aren't comfortable with giving you know, that information or creating an account. Good news, now you can check out or give as a guest. So they just added that this week, our platform. So now you don't have to create an account if you don't want to. It's a lot easier because um, you can just go in and click it. But if you just want to give as a guest, that option is available now too. So if you haven't used that because of that um, requirement, that's gone. So anyway, dreamcolumbia.com slash give. Give on the, the app. Um, and I think that's all the other way. In text, you can give every way. So anyway, we're going to pass this around. Kyle's not here, but Megan is. And they're about to get married. So the two are about to become one. So we'll practice that today. And Megan can give. If you want to give, raise your hand. I know it's the last couple of days of the month, so everybody's probably already given. But if you want to go above and beyond, this is your day. So anyway, thank you so much for giving. Um, the Lord is just blessing and blessing through your obedience. So thank you so much for that. Ezra 3. I'm going to start reading today, and then uh, we'll, we'll see where we go from there. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Some of the Lord's been doing in me. Uh, thank you so much. Um, anybody else? Did she miss anybody else? Perfect. Okay. Thank you. Some of the Lord's been doing in me is... is getting me past having to face the spirit of religion. And here's what I mean by that. And this is going to explain, so I want to explain this beforehand. A lot of times the Lord will give me whatever he wants to say in a sermon, and I'll process that through the lens of addressing the spirit of religion that it's going to hit first. And so what I mean is, is you and I grew up a certain way. We just, all of us did. Especially if you grew up in South Carolina or the South, you probably grew up in the same church as everybody else. I mean, it's just, they're pretty much all the same. And, um, and that's not, dis, it's not to dishonor anybody, but a lot of stuff that we grew up being taught was, was very just, um, re, it was Christianity, the religion, um, not Christianity, the covenant. And the, the, the danger is, is sometimes those seem similar. Sometimes the fruit seems similar, but one is manufactured and one is brought about authentically. And so 
when I'm processing some of this stuff that the Lord's giving me, um, or anybody else's that's teaching, the first thing that I immediately think, not because the Lord brings this up to my mind, but just because it's natural, the first thing that I think is, okay, I've got to deliver this in a way that first addresses the spirit of religion in all the years hearing this. And not that that is necessarily wrong, but I feel like I've been set free from that this week. And so what that's going to mean is, is the Lord is going to start giving us some very orthodox, orthodox means straight way of thinking, okay, um, biblical revelation, but, but because some of the biblical revelation goes against some of the Western thinking in America especially, and especially in the South, um, when you feel that kickback, take it to the Lord. And, uh, and I'm going to say like Paul, if you don't believe anything I got to say, go to the Lord and ask him, and he'll tell you what he has to think about anything I have to say or anybody else. So test. I, dare, I mean, seriously, test every word. that I, Don't just take what I say and be like, all right, great, that's awesome. I believe that now. I mean, test it. Take it to the Lord. Pray about it. See how you feel about it. And I got it from the Lord, so he'll probably tell you the same thing I said. So, um, you know what I mean? I mean, that's, I, I'm cool. I, I would prefer that you take it to the Lord. Let him confirm. But anyway, I'm going to read Ezra 3, and uh, we're just going gonna, gonna to talk about identity today, but I'm going to do it a little different way. So here we go. I'm going to read the whole chapter. I know we read the first half last week, but just to give us some context, I'm going to go ahead and read it. It's only 13 verses, so it's not that much. Ezra 3, verse 1, In early autumn, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, this is after exile, they're coming back to rebuild the temple, all the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose. Amen. Then Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, joined his fellow priest and Zerubbabel, son of Shietz, or excuse me, Shealtiel. That's a really weird word to pronounce, especially if you start saying bad words. Anyway, with his family in, re, in rebuilding the altar of God of Israel. Some of y'all said that on the way here, and you didn't want to, want to say it. They, waited, they wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, as instructed in the law of Moses, the man of God. Even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar in its old site. Then they began to offer sacrifices, or they began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord morning and evening. They celebrated the festival of shelters as prescribed in the law, sacrificing the number of burnt offerings specified for each day of the festival. They also offered the regular burnt offerings and offerings required for the new moon celebrations and the annual festivals as prescribed by the Lord. The people also gave voluntary offerings to the Lord 15 days before the festival of shelters began. The priest had begun to sacrifice burnt offerings to the Lord. This was before they had started to lay the foundation of the Lord's temple. Okay. I taught on this last week. If you missed it, go back, because today will make way more sense if you know what last week was. But verse 7, here's the new stuff. Verse 7, Then, after they rebuild the altar, then the people hired masons and carpenters and brought cedar logs from the people of Tyre and Sidon, paying them with food, wine, and olive oil. The logs were brought down from the Lebanon mountains and floated along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to Joppa, for King Cyrus had given permission for this. The construction of the temple of God began in mid-spring during the second year after they arrived in Jerusalem. The workforce was made up of everyone who returned from exile. I love that. Including Zerubbabel, the son, Jeshua, son of Jehozadak and his fellow priest, and all the, all the Levites. The Levites, listen to this, okay? Just, just process this through what the Lord's doing here, okay? The Levites, who were 20 years old or older, were put in charge of rebuilding the Lord's temple. The workers at the temple of God were supervised by Jeshua, or Joshua, whichever one you want to say in Hebrew, with his sons and relatives, and Kadmiel and his sons, all descendants of Hodavia. They were helped in this task by the Levites of the family of Hinnadad. Now listen to this right here. Here we go. This is the whole message. 
when the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests put on their robes and took their places to blow their trumpets. And the Levites, descendants of Asaph, clashed their cymbals to praise the Lord, just as David prescribed. With praise and thanks, they sang this song, He is good, His faithful love for Israel endures forever. Now ready for this? This is where we're going to get fun. Then all the people gave a shout, praising the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. But, but, many of the older priests, Levites, and other leaders who had seen the first temple wept aloud because they saw the new temple's foundation. The others, however, were shouting for joy. The joyful shouting and the weeping mingled together in a loud noise that could be heard far in the distance. Y'all ready? Here we go. I'm ready to ride, so I hope you are too. A foundation is the underlying basis or principle of something. It is what everything else finds its meaning in and is what everything else is anchored to. We know this well because when we were born again, and I'm going to fix maybe that language somewhere in this message. Um, born again is right. The, the Aramaic says this, and one of the Greek translations is this too. The Aramaic says born from origin. I like that way better. But anyway, we know this idea of foundation because when we were born again, we received the first fruits or the foundation of entirely resurrected life that is also to come. So we are co-resurrected with Christ, yet, since Jesus hasn't come back yet, we haven't literally been resurrected. So we're resurrected, and yet we're not resurrected yet. Okay? The reality and anchoring the foundation, let's say, is already within us, and that will guide the fullness of the experience that is to come. So our identity as co-resurrected with Christ is what will anchor us and guide us to the point where we are physically resurrected with Christ. You with me? Okay. So your foundation, you ready? Your foundation dictates the integrity of your house. If your foundation is weak, the integrity of your character and covenant will be weak. Likewise, if your foundation is strong, the integrity of your character and covenant will also be strong. So we had this happen in our house this week. We have a place in our floor that just didn't feel right, so we called somebody to come look at our foundation. And I told Lee McDermott, my spiritual father, the day that they came to look at the house, he was here at the church along with some of our other elders. We were just talking about the future and different things. And, um, and so anyway, so I told him, I said, you know what's funny? It seems like a lot of stuff that happens to our, our actual house is very prophetic to what the Lord's doing in his house. And so I was like, so Lord, please let the foundation of his house be solid because somebody's about to come look at our foundation. And um, so anyway, so they come look at the foundation and they check it out. And it checks out great. The foundation's awesome. But we thought the foundation had a problem because the floor didn't look like what we thought it should look like. Right? So what, so what we're doing, what Yahweh's doing right now, is He's bringing us to the place where we trust that the foundation is solid even if the house starts looking different than what we thought the house would look like. Identity is foundational. If you have not allowed yourself to receive original identity, you will never build a lasting house. Remember, 1 Corinthians 3.16, it's easy to remember because it's the same numbers as John 3.16, says that we, you and I, the church together, we are the house or the temple of the Lord that God's Spirit takes up residence in. This is who we are. Therefore, when we study the temple, 
we need to have an eye out for revelation concerning you and I, as well as creation, which we're going to talk about next week. Two responses, two responses in this chapter are given at the rebuilding of the foundation celebration here in Ezra 3. There's two responses. There's shouts of joy from one group, and there's mourning and sorrow from another group. One group is losing their mind in excitement. Another group is weeping in mourning at the same thing. The young people who had, and we, we know this by verse 12, the young people who had never seen the old temple shouted for joy at the new one. The older people and the priest who had seen the old temple wept and mourned. Let me say it like this. Those who had a consciousness of the old temple felt kickback and sorrow when another generation came to not build something new, but restore the original design and function of what had been. Those who had no consciousness whatsoever of the old temple felt one thing, joy. Because it didn't look exactly like the old and had some different designs and different materials, the pre-exile generation could not see what the post-exile generation saw. I'm going to explain this. The, the group of people who had seen the old temple and was comparing the new foundation to the one that they knew before wept because this did not look like that. Another generation, though, that was raised in exile had never laid their eyes on the old one. They had no consciousness of what the old foundation looked like. Therefore, when they finished laying the foundation of what Yahweh had called them to do, they began to shout with joy because they have no consciousness of the old. Are y'all tracking with me? Okay, okay. This is so good. If we are the temple of God now, where His Spirit dwells, then we can see a direct correlation to those today who refuse to rejoice in the new identity given by the second Adam because they cannot let go of the old identity religion gave them by way of the first Adam. Well, i got to say this one more time. That, nobody got it. Okay. Just if, we, if we're the temple of God now, which we are, and the Spirit dwells within us, which He does, we can see a direct correlation to those today who refuse to rejoice in new identity that was given to us by the second Adam, Jesus, because they cannot let go of the old identity that religion gave them by way of the first Adam. When Yahweh allows a generation who has been and is being set free from a consciousness of the old identity to inherit a new foundation of our new identity, any part of you still connected to the old will start to kick back. Any part of you. This is exactly how you know which pieces of you are still in Adam. And I, I hate using Adam as the, as the scapegoat for sin. I hate that. At the same time, this is what Romans 5 says, and I'm about to read Romans 5, so I'm just trying to connect everything. All right, so any piece of you that still relates to Adam will show its ugly head when we start hearing things like all creation is standing on tiptoe waiting for you and I to be manifested. That's, that's when you'll start saying, well, well, brother, we're just depraved. How can this be? We're just a bunch of sinners. According to Christ, we're not. If you're in Adam, absolutely. <laughs> and I might even argue against that, but you know, we'll, just, we'll save that for a second. We'll save that for a second. But if, if you are in the first Adam, sure, 
But if you're in the second Adam, he doesn't exist. We're, we're going to go right now. We're about to go in some uncharted territory. You ready? <laughs> Religion taught you and I that we were sinners that God tolerated at best. They, religion, made, you ready? Just see this. They made salvation about running from hell, the Holy Spirit an aid to your temptations, your past, something you just learned to live with, your sickness, something you manage, Jesus is coming about escaping, and the flesh and the world, a physical reality that God lied about being good in Genesis because he has destruction on his mind. This is what religion said. Let's go a little deeper. They made Trump, Christ, COVID a conspiracy, a vaccine, the mark of the beast, and Fox News, the Bible. <laughs> Sometimes I just say stuff like that because it feels good. Okay. But, but this is what we've done, right? We have more faith in a president than we do in the king. This is where we are. Okay. All of those, all of those, have one thing in common. You ready? Every bit of that has one thing in common. They require you, the sinner, to be the foundation that everything is built on. All of those have one thing in common. You not being victorious because you're still a sinner. Religion makes everything about sin because everyone is sinners. You can't be free because you're depraved and chained. You need situations around you to change for you because you, as you were, have zero authority to do anything. So we, we will hold on to the blessed hope of leaving because we feel like we have zero authority to do anything while we're staying. And the gospel is, I've given you all authority. Now go and disciple, listen, people, but he doesn't say that. He says, go and disciple nations, which includes people, but it also includes the trees and the rivers and the birds and the animals saying, you're coming back to how you were designed. Okay, this is what I'm talking about. See, see, right there, right there. Well, I don't know about that. You don't have to know about that, I, but I'm going to set it free. And if we want to sit around and talk about how depraved we are all day long, y'all can do that. But I'm going to live my life free, and I'm going to reign with Christ in his creation that, guess what? He gave me and you. He didn't raise up Adam and say, all right, y'all sit right here. I'm going to go be fruitful and multiply. No, he says, I made you in my image. You can do what I can do. Go be fruitful and multiply. Okay. But if you are in Christ... Sin becomes irrelevant to your identity. Hey, religion. You lose consciousness of the one identified as sinner and rejoice in the new or original identity known as righteous. Righteousness means right standing. So being declared righteous means you never lose right standing. Your identity is permanent. So Jesus tells us salvation. Jesus tells us you and I are perfect. That salvation is about getting your image and likeness back. The Holy Spirit is God making his home in you. Your past is forgotten. Your sickness is made whole. Jesus is coming. Is God setting things right again? And no matter who's president or what's going on around us, we reign in the creation that we have been given. We are the only key to its freedom. So you see how the narrative changes right there? When you talk about religion, everything hinges on you being an awful sinner. But when you talk about Jesus and righteousness, everything hinges on because of this, you and I are like that. This is good. This is good gospel. This is the gospel. Um, 
If you never heard it, welcome. Uh, Romans 5. Let me read this. Let me read this. Romans 5. What time is it? Oh, man, i got so much time. Praise the Lord. That's the best, literally, as a, the best feeling ever is when you look at the clock and it's only 1120. Praise God. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Listen to this. You ready? Romans 5, 17. Here we go. Death once. Death once held us in its grip. I mean, do, we, do y'all believe that? I mean, see, like, I, I mean, we just take all this, these verses and just stop at one sentence. Death once held us in his grip. We're still living as, as slaves to death. We, okay. And by the blunder of one man, death reigned as king over humanity. Notice the past tense. But now, how much more... Are we held in the grip of grace and continue reigning as kings in life, enjoying our regal freedom through the gift of perfect righteousness in the one and only Jesus, the Messiah? In other words, just as condemnation came upon all people. That's a terrible translation. I'll fix that in a second. Just as condemnation came upon all people, Through one transgression, so through one righteous act of Jesus' sacrifice, the perfect righteousness that makes us right with God and leads us to a victorious life now available to all. One man's, I'm going to read it in in the Greek. One man's disobedience opened the door for many to become sinners. So also, one man's obedience opened the door for those same many to be made perfectly right with God and acceptable to Him. So then, the law was introduced into God's plan to bring the reality of human sinfulness out of hiding. Yet, yet, wherever sin increased, there was more than enough of God's grace to triumph over all. The more. And just as sin reigned through death, so also this sin conquering grace will reign as king through righteousness, imparting eternal life through Jesus our Lord the Messiah. We we have an easier time relating to Adam's disobedience than God's obedience in Jesus. It is much easier for us to look in the mirror and say that person is a sinner than it is for us to look in the mirror and say that person is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Way easier. Why? Do we ever think about stuff like this? Why is it easier for me to say I'm a messed up, jacked up sinner than it is for me to say I'm perfect in His eyes? Why is that easier? Because if Jesus Christ fully God came to the cross to say it is finished and do away with the work of the first Adam, how are we still living chained up to the first Adam? I mean, that we, we preach messages, we sing songs, we do missions, we do all this stuff with the mindset that we're still chained to somebody that, guess what, doesn't exist. It's, it's not just a reality that we're just like, man, I hope we don't fall back into that. This reality doesn't exist anymore. This Adam doesn't exist. Let me ask you this. You know, all of it, we, we all, I mean, if, just think about this. We see reaching the lost as really difficult. How far do we go here? If my daughter gets lost... If my daughter is lost, does her being lost have anything to do with ownership? Is she still my daughter? So we see reaching the lost as some big feat. Reaching the lost is as simple as showing people who they really are. This isn't who you are. 
before I put you in my mother in your mother's womb, I intimately knew you. I knit you together. We were made in the image of God. Listen, uh, man, I, I wish I could. I wish I could say what I really feel. I wish I could say what I really feel without the. Maybe I will. Maybe I will. We haven't. You ready? We have an easier time believing people are born into sin than born into Christ. Well, Brother David said into, into, you know, iniquity I was born. Yeah, David was born out of a concubine, which is exactly why he writes that. So into iniquity, absolutely David was born. That's not talking about you and I. And when, Now, when we choose to be obedient to the first Adam, absolutely. Salvation is going to come find the lost. The ones who have been misplaced. But, but a baby is not born into sin. So, so see, when I say when I say this stuff, right? Why why do why did we ever get to the place? Why did we ever get to the place where we think it's easier for people to be born into sin and nastiness? Because we easily relate to the first Adam. But if Christ came as the second Adam to so undo the works of the first Adam, why do we still think we're getting our teeth kicked in by an identity that Christ nailed to the cross? So how do you start seeing people differently? Let me say it like this. When, when, when the Lord goes after sin in you and I, does he go after us? It's not a trick question. No. Somehow the Lord can deal with our sin without touching our identity. Here's how we do it. Here's how we do it in religion. We aim at sin and simultaneously aim at the identity as well. And it's possible that you can aim at the sin while calling, while calling out the right identity at the same time. We don't do this. So if somebody's living in a homosexual lifestyle, you got to quiet. If somebody's living in that lifestyle, you know what we'll do? We won't aim at trying to pull out their original identity out of them while also going after the thing that shouldn't exist within that original identity. We'll go after them. And the Lord's calling us to a place where we have our aim on the first Adam to the point where every person on planet Earth knows who they are in the second Adam. Might be going a little too far. John 1.29, you ready? John 1.29, he said, you don't, have to, don't turn there, it's just one verse. John 1.29, he says this, I shared this in the group this week. John 1.29, he says this. The very next day, John saw Jesus coming to him to be baptized, and John cried out, Look, there he is, God's Lamb. He will take away the sin of the world. Now, your, some of your translations say sin, wrong, wrong. The Greek word is singular, sin. The Greek word is hamartia, hamartia, and it means, the literal definition of that is a sin, singular. So, ready? And then the, the word takes away, here comes the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, is aereo, or aero, excuse me, in the Greek. And that means to lift up as an anchor is lifted up for a ship. So here comes the lamb to lift the anchor of sin from man. If it's, this is what the Greek says, if, if it's sins, which it deals, absolutely, that sin deals with every other sins, no doubt. But Jesus didn't come just to play defense every time you and I do something we're not supposed to do. Jesus came to deal with the root of what causes you to fall into that stuff in the first place. If he comes to deal with sins, it's never accomplished. I mean, think about this. If he comes to deal with every single sin, then every single time that we mess up, he's got to do it again and do it again and do it again and do it again. But if he came to deal with the first bite of the fruit that felt, allowed us to fall into this in the first place, then he completed a work that you and I can live in regardless of what we're walking through. If he deals with the root, guess what happens to the tree? It dies. So if he deals with the root of the first Adam, guess what happens to the first Adam? It begins to die. And I'm not talking about Adam because he was redeemed afterwards. So that's what I want to say. I don't want to put it all on Adam. 
But to use the word of Paul, the words of Paul, the obedience that caused us to fall into a sin consciousness, now we need to take the same zeal, the same zeal that we have in relating to Adam and his nastiness and leverage that same zeal into seeing ourselves as the righteousness of God perfect in the eyes of Yahweh. The same zeal. Every single day that I spend beating myself up over all my mess-ups, I need to take that same beating up and put the same passion to work in convincing myself that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I'm the head, not the tail. I'm the first, not the last. I'm above only and not belief because he died on a cross to buy that. He didn't die on a cross so that you could walk around saying, I'm just a sinner, but at least I'm forgiven. No, he died on a cross so that you could walk around healing people, setting people free, releasing creation back into its design to the point where he comes to reign with us. I feel like preaching today. So, y'all with me? That's all right, I'm there anyway. Did the death and resurrection of Jesus, ready? Give God an easier way of forgiving you every single time you do something. Or did it give us something greater? Sins, sins, as a lot of translations wrongly translate that, does not deal with the core. Deals with the fruit. Deals with the actions. But sin, one, deals with the original action. It deals with the core of what causes any other action that follows. It's, here's what, here we go. When Jesus deals with sin, he actually starts dealing with the identity of sin. Here, so let's say it like this. Look, here comes the lamb to lift up the anchor of the identity of sin in humanity. We believe this, and just like I'm just going to reiterate something. We believe this, yet we don't know we believe this just by the fact that we call unbelievers lost. This is what we're saying is, what we're saying, when I look at somebody and call them lost, it's my spirit. I don't even think about this. It's you're in my spirit telling us, confirming in us that that is intended to be mine. The people around us that are unbelievers there should be, and this is something that's convicted me this week, and this is why I'm kind of real passionate about this right now, but there should be a drive in us to show the people around us that this is not who you are. Do you know what I'm saying? It, we're, I'm not, I don't need to call, because I didn't knit anybody together in their mother's womb. He did. They're not mine. They're his. So when you see Jesus walking around, he's not going to people trying to convince them that he's God. He states he's God. And then those who are willing to take the risk and believe that he is actually who he says he is are the ones that step fully into who they are. And guess who those were? The prostitutes, the tax collectors, and all the people that the religious said we don't want. This is what Jesus says. He, he goes to the Pharisees. Right? He goes to the Pharisees, and he looks them dead in the eyes, and he says, the prostitutes and the tax collectors will see the kingdom of God for, before you do. That's what he tells them. You know why he tells him that? Because he wasn't concerned with the first Adam in them. He was concerned with the fact that they were finally starting to believe they were about to be set free by another Adam. He's not looking for you and I to beat ourselves up. He's looking for you and I to be convinced of who we actually are. Sin isn't an identity. Sin is a mask. Adam's identity in the image of God did not change when he sinned. A mask, a veil was put over his identity. And Jesus came to do what? Tear the veil. John 3.3 3 says, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. The Greek is, unless they are born from above. The Aramaic, like I said earlier, is unless they are born from origin from originality, how they were designed. When you are found, when you're born again, you, like the temple in Ezra that we've read, are given a brand new identity. You are given the identity that you had originally. 
God knew you intimately before he formed you. The lost aren't reached by us giving them something new. The lost are reached by us showing them who they've been before the foundations of the earth. They don't need a new identity. They need their original identity. They need to come home. For too long, because of our Adam consciousness given to us by religion, we have aimed at sin by aiming at sinners. We destroy God's sons and daughters in an effort to destroy their sin. God doesn't do that with us. He aims at our sin while calling us righteous at the same time. He deals with sin and by excuse me, he deals with sin and reaffirms who we most authentically are in him at the exact same time. Can't listen. Here's a question we really need to ask ourselves. Can we aim at disobedience and sin in our culture and also flood the earth with originality at the same time? I believe we must if we're going to see his kingdom come. This is something that, I mean, this is something the Lord has really convicted me about this week is how I see those who I call lost. How, how I view those who I call lost. And this is really relevant in our culture today because all we want to do is argue. And if people don't like what we got to say or we don't like what other people got to say, we shut them off. This is our culture right now in any facet, any facet whatsoever. And it's because while we've tried to aim at issues, we've aimed at people. And nobody wants to be aimed at. I don't, you don't, nobody wants to be aimed at. Because we weren't designed to be aimed at. Jesus didn't aim at us. He aimed at what was within us that kept us from being us. So, so how can we, and this is, just to be clear, I'm not talking about universalism, that you just do whatever you want and everybody just makes it. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay? Y'all, and y'all understand that, right? I mean, you know me. I've preached for years. So hopefully you understand what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is how we view those who God has knit together and yet right now don't know that is going to greatly determine the speed at which his kingdom is spread across the globe and creation. It's the, it's the same issue that I have when we call creation bad that God wants to destroy is the same issue I and you should have when we see people as bad that God wants to destroy. If, if, if it weren't for people in my life that called me to a place that said, this is not who you are, I would be so lost today, it's not even funny. But there were people that God brought into my life that said, I see this in you, I see this in you, I see this in you, but you were designed for more. And called me to that. Like We don't, we don't do that. And this is, if I'm being honest with you, I didn't even write this message to be evangelistic. But, but that's kind of what it is. This is a message, like those people who are around you, and let me be clear, okay? I'm not talking about not aiming at sin. I'm talking about aiming at sin. But the way we're going to aim at sin is to call out the second Adam's identity in every human being. And by doing that, as he begins to take center stage, guess what has to leave the room? The stuff that can't exist in the presence of a new identity. So, so do, you know, do you know what causes me to not want to look at porn on the computer? It's not because I say no and have sight blockers. Those are great things. You know why I don't want to do that? Because I've said yes to him. I don't have that desire. And if you still have that desire, that's not knocking it. I mean, that's great. Like, there's, it's a process. But at the same time, if you think the way that you're going to be free from stuff is by saying no to it, we've tried that. It's called the, sec- the first Adam. It's called the Old Testament. We've tried that, and we didn't do it. But the second Adam came so that instead of living with a no in your mouth, you could live with such a yes in your mouth that no's start flowing off of you effortlessly. Right? I don't, I don't want to sleep around with other women. You know why? Because I've said such a yes to my wife. I have no desire to do that. 
Not because I'm sitting around saying no, but because I've given one yes, and that has been sufficient enough to produce all the other no's. Let me, let me read Colossians 3. Man, I, Lord, I feel this. I'm about to blow up. Um, I, this makes me so excited. <laughs> Colossians 3. Colossians 3. Oh, man. Uh, actually, let me, let me back up. Let me back up. Colossians 2. What time is it? Okay. Colossians 2, verse 6. In the same way, in the same way, you have received Jesus our Lord, the Messiah, or excuse me, the Lord and Messiah, by faith, continuing your journey of faith, progressing further into your union with Him. Your spiritual roots go deeply into His life as you continually are infused with strength, encouraged in every way, for you are established in the faith as you absorb and enrich uh, as you have absorbed and are enriched by your devotion to him. Excuse me. Beware, listen to this, beware that no one distracts you or intimidates you in their attempt to lead you away from Christ's fullness by pretending to be full of wisdom when they're filled with endless arguments of human logic. For they operate with humanistic and clouded judgments based on the mindset of this world system and not the anointed truths of the anointed one. For he is the complete fullness of deity living in human form, and our own completeness is now found in him. We are completely filled with God as Christ's fullness overflows within us. I'm reading the Passion Translation, by the way. He is the head of every kingdom and authority in the universe. Through our union with him, through our union with him, we have experienced circumcision of the heart. All listen to this, all the guilt and power of sin has been cut away and is now extinct because of what Christ the anointed one has accomplished for us. That, that was real good. That was a good place for amen. That's okay. <laughs> for we have been buried with him into his death. Our baptism into death also means we were raised with him when we believe in God's resurrection power, the power that raised him from death's realm. This realm of death describes our former state, for we were held in sin's grasp. But now... We've been resurrected out of that realm, never to return, for we are forever alive and forgiven of all of our sins. And let me just be clear. The, the, the realm of death describes our former state, for we were held in sin's grasp. Uh, you could apply that to who you were before Christ. Paul's right there is talking about before Jesus came and did away with the power of darkness. So when he says... This realm of death describes our former state. He's talking about humanities. He's talking about the body of Christ, former state. You with me? Okay. So way more than just this, just the little minute thing that we thought. But now we've been resurrected out of that realm of death, never to return, for we are forever alive and forgiven of all of our sins. He canceled out every legal violation we had on our record and the old arrest warrant that stood to indict us. He erased it all, our sins and our stained soul. He deleted it all, and now they can never be retrieved. One more time. He erased all of it, our sins and our stained soul. He deleted and they cannot be retrieved. It's like when you delete something on your Mac and then you empty your trash can. And then it's like, oh, man, I really needed something in that. It's gone. You can't get it. Actually, I got a buddy that could hack into it and I can't get to it. But with me, point is, what Jesus did is he emptied the trash can. So when you go to God and say, Lord, you know, I just, I'm, I'm just, I'm really feeling, be he's saying, what are you talking about? You're feeling like who? You're acting like who? I don't know who they are. That, thing, that thing's been deleted. 
Okay. Then, then this, is, this is what I love. Y'all ready? Spiritual warfare. You ready? Here's how we do spiritual warfare. <laughs> 15. Jesus made a public spectacle of all the powers and principalities of darkness, stripping away from them every weapon and all their spiritual authority and their power to accuse us. Jesus, excuse me, by the cross, Jesus led them around as prisoners in a procession of triumph. He was not their prisoner. They were his. Woo! So why, almost done, why would you allow anyone to judge you because of what you eat or what you drink or insist that you keep the feast, observe the new moon celebrations or the Sabbath? All of these were but a prophetic shadow and the evidence of what would be fulfilled for the body is now Christ. Don't let anyone disqualify you from your prize. Don't let their pretended sincerity fool you as they deliberately lead you into their initiation of angel worship. That's something cultural. We don't need to worry about that. Okay. For they take pleasure in pretending to be experts of something they know nothing about. Hello, religion. They take pleasure in pretending to be experts of something they know nothing about. How do you learn? Let me just, a little rabbit trail real quick. How do you learn the nature of something? By knowing that something. How do I know the nature of my wife? Because we're in relationship. I could read book after book after book after book after book about my wife, but I would never know her until I stepped into a relationship with her. Religion has no clue who the Holy Spirit is half the time and wants to teach us who the Holy Spirit is. They don't know who he is. Amen. Right? This, this is what Paul's talking about. This is what he's talking about. They take pleasure in pretending to be experts of something they don't even know. Their reasoning is meaningless and comes only from their own opinions. They refuse to take hold of the true source. But we receive directly from Him. And His life supplies vitality into every part of the body, though He, excuse me, through the joining of ligaments connected, connecting us all as one. He is divine, the divine head who guides his body and causes it to grow by the supernatural power of God. Almost done. For you were included in death with Christ and have died with him to the religious system and powers of this world. I'm going to take a drink while y'all think about that one. What was his death? His death was so that you and I could die to A, the religious system. Check. And B, the powers of this world. What's left? Do not retreat back into being bullied by the standards and opinions of religion. <laughs> For example, their strict requirements. You can't associate with that person, or don't eat that, or don't touch that. These are the doctrines of men and corrupt customs that are worthless to help you spiritually. For though they may appear to possess the promise of wisdom in their submission to God through the deprivation of their physical bodies, it is exactly or is actually nothing more than empty rules rooted in religious rituals. A few more verses. 3:1. Christ's resurrection is your resurrection too. This is why we are to yearn for all that is above, for that is where Christ sits enthroned at the place of all power, all honor, and all authority. Yes, feast on all the treasures of the heavenly realm and fill your thoughts with heavenly realities, and not with the distractions of the natural realm. Your crucifixion with Christ has now severed the tie to this life, and now your true life is hidden away in God, in Christ. And as Christ himself is seen for who he really is, who you really are will also be revealed. 
For you are now one with him in his glory. Last couple of verses, I promise. This is just too good. Live as one, live as one who has died to every form of sexual sin and impurity. Live as one who has died to diseases. Notice he's not saying say no to this stuff. He's saying live as one who never even knew what it was to begin with. It's dead. You understand this? He's not saying say no to sexual sin and impurity. He's saying you live your life as if that never was given breath. Live as one who has died to every form of sexual sin and impurity, as one died to diseases and and desires for forbidden things, including the desire for wealth, which is the essence of idol worship. Salah. When you live in these vices, you ignite the anger of God against these acts of obedience. Also note right there, He's talking to the body of believers. Note right there that he does not aim at the believers. He aims at the acts of disobedience. Do you see this? Amazing. That's how you once behaved, characterized by your evil deeds. But now it's time to eliminate them from your lives once and for all. Anger, fits of rage, I'll take that for me. All forms of hatred, cursing, filthy speech, and lying. Ready? Here we go. This is it. Lay aside your old Adam self with its masquerade and disguise. Another way you could say this is lay aside your old Adam self with its costumes. For you have acquired new creation life, which is continually being renewed into the likeness of the one who created you giving you the full revelation of God in, last verse, in this creation life, your nationality makes no difference, your ethnicity, education, or economic status, they they matter nothing, for it is Christ that means everything as He lives in every one of us. Thank you, Paul. We will not taste the fullness of the original, new, House Yahweh is inviting us to build until we stop looking to the old and lose every single ounce of old identity consciousness within us. You can trace 100% of my questions and your questions and our issues to the pieces of old identity remaining in us. All of them. Any questions that we've had about God and His nature and issues that we've had about God and His nature, all of those can be traced right back to a relationship with the first Adam. All of them. All of them. And that's not to say that's a bad thing. It's to say that the Lord has given us access into freedom. How do you get to the place where you have questions and complete and total trust at the exact same time? Dada Adam. Because if I'm alive in Christ... I can say, I completely trust you, but this doesn't make sense, this doesn't make sense, and this doesn't make sense. But I trust you enough to know you'll give me the answer when I need it. Easy. I don't know why this happened, but I trust you. I don't know why this is going on, but I trust you. I don't know why. It seems like every time we get a financial blessing in our lives, all of our possessions start breaking. But I trust you. That's us personally this week. But, you know what I'm saying? Every car we own in our house, all of it's just losing its mind. But this week, this week, the Lord's continually reminding me, do you trust me? It seems like everything, every single thing that the Lord has done in us always circles back around to the question, do you trust me? All of it. I preached this in the theater the second month of our church almost four years ago. Do you trust me? No prayer life. No devotional life, issues tithing, habitual sins, being chained to your past, anxiety, trouble understanding, scripture, all of that. Because it doesn't fit in the religious framework, becoming bored or complacent in the church, treating the church as an afterthought, etc., all of that find their root in Adam. Issue, let me say one more time. Matt, you can go ahead and come up here if you don't mind. Issues in our prayer life, our devotional life, tithing, habitual sins, chained to our past, anxiety, troubles, trouble understanding Scripture, etc. All of that. All of that. Because none of that fits in our religious framework. Becoming bored and complacent 
in the bride, which is one with God, treating the church as an afterthought, all of this, all this stuff, every bit of it finds its root in Adam. You will mourn Yahweh's redemption if you cannot let go of Adam. You you will mourn what Yahweh is doing in the earth and those around you if you can't let go to being chained to an old identity. What do I mean by that? I believe that some of the most messed, and this is just me, I believe some of the most messed up people in our world right now are possibly going to lead the charge in his kingdom coming in the earth. Prove it. Read through the New Testament. He didn't pick the religious elite. He picked the ones the religious elite hated. And there are people in your life right now, in my life right now, this is me, there are people in our lives that we think are completely insignificant because of their disobedience. And Yahweh is calling us to a place. This is what it means to be not just the image of God, but the likeness of God. He's calling us into a place where we can start to approach these people and not see them for their disobedience, but see them for their design. Does Yahweh, listen, when I was lost, did Yahweh look at me and see me for my disobedience? Or did he see Joshua, the one I thread together in his mother's womb? That's who he saw me as. I mean, this, man. Think about how heartbroken that the father is over sons and daughters that he keeps sending those who are supposed to be authentic sons and daughters and image bearer into the picture to call them out. And instead, our response is subconsciously or literally, you are worthless because of what you're done. And yet we believe in a gospel that calls us righteous despite what we've done. Do you understand this? I mean, students at USC walk, walking around, seeing people. And listen, I have to face this all the time because we see hundreds of homeless people that trash the outside of our church every day. I'm just being real. And let me tell you, typically, the first thing that, that rises up in me is not love. I'm just confessing this out to y'all. The first thing that rises up into me is like, there's a trash can over there. Can we not just throw this stuff away? And that's righteous. That's totally righteous, and that's legit. We should throw our trash away. But the issue in me, and this is just me. I'll just aim at me. The issue in me is why my first gut reaction to certain people, fill in the blank, homeless, homosexuals, people who've had abortions, people of a race that you grew up not really liking. I mean, let's just be real. Right? You know what I'm saying? The reason that we have those kickback reactions to certain people is because we see them as what they have done or what somebody has told us about them. We don't see them for who they are. This is huge. This is huge. And the reason that I feel like Yahweh wants to bring us into this understanding is because where we're about to go is extremely significant. We're about to get into the place where he begins to teach us why every bit of his creation was designed to be a temple containing his glory. Mega stuff that the Lord's bringing us into. But the first thing he, got, he has to bring us into was last week rebuilding the altar of devotion before we ever touch his temple. But then as we begin to start rebuilding his temple, he's going to bring people. He's already done this. Look around the room. He's going to bring people. Look at me. I mean, we went to a worship night Tuesday night at the church that I used to be a worship leader at. Back when I was more lost than you could imagine. If I'm, I mean, if I'm just being honest, talk about my ownership, the ownership of my life, I was a son of God. And yet I was more misplaced than anything you've ever seen in your life. I thought everything was about me. I thought ministry was about me. And all I cared about was getting fans. That's all I cared about. So we go back into that same environment. The first time I've ever been back in that environment since we started the church. First time. We get back in that environment Tuesday night. And I'm looking around and I'm saying, thank you for not throwing me away when I should have been thrown away. You had every right 
to rip my butt off that stage and say, you're never taking a mic again. And I would have been okay with that. It would have been totally righteous. And yet you said, Josh, this isn't who you are. And sat, sat with me in the secret place. Five hours a day, morning and every morning, morning and morning out, morning and morning out, morning and morning out, saying, this pride thing, not who you are. So I'm going to take this. This fame thing, this is not who you are. So I'm going to take this. And now I want you to start a family where you're not going to have a lot of influence. You're not going to have a lot of fans, but you're going to have a lot of me. He didn't throw me away. He didn't throw you away. You're in this room. He didn't throw you away. He said, you're not what you are. And this is what creation's crying out for. Creation's crying out for you and I to be manifested because you and I being manifested is a dare to the creation that if we could be manifested in all of our mess, it can be manifested in all of its mess. We we could look at, at the parties going on in five points and it's real easy for us to say, well, man, those people are just lost. It's real easy for us to respond to those people as, well, these people are just like family members. It's real easy for us to just throw them away and say, you know what? If this ain't going to work out, boop, throw them in the garbage. Who cares? But Yahweh is bringing us to a place. You talk about Matt preached on this one. Love your neighbor as yourself and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength are not two commandments. They're one. They're two sides of the same coin. You can't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength without loving your neighbor as yourself. And you can't love your neighbor as yourself without loving the Lord your God with all your heart, heart soul, mind, or strength. And so he's, he's calling us into a place where it's one thing to say, this is what I believe. It's a whole nother thing to look at somebody who this thing was written about and say, this is who you are.